Father, we pray, please, that you give us great confidence today as we come to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, just this morning, I switched on my computer and happened to have Facebook open and it refreshed and up popped in the feed uh, this bizarre thing in one of the, from one of the group forums that I'm part of. Uh, it was the results of a study about confidence. Uh, confidence is a good thing to know about. It's a good thing to study. You know, psychologists have got to do something. But here's the question that the study uh, of 2,000 British people and 2,000 Americans asked, which of the following animals, if any, do you think you could beat in a fight if you were unarmed? <laughs> what, a, what a weird question. Uh, uh, but even more bizarre are the results of the study, and here they are. Uh, there's some weird numbers in there. I'll post a link in the two different Facebook groups, our private one and our public one, uh, so you can have a closer look later. But really surprising is that only about 70% of people think they could beat a rat in an unarmed fight. <laughs> that's, that's weird to me. 30% of people can't take on a rat. Uh, even more surprising, I think, is around 5% think that unarmed they could beat a lion and 5% think they could beat an elephant as well. You can check the stats later on that table. There's some really funny ones in there. But the thing that stood out, and, and this is really what they were studying, is that Americans are far more confident than British people, at least when it comes to wrestling animals unarmed. Uh, and perhaps that says something about Americans and their their bravado, their confidence that it, that it really is, uh, they're more brash than the Brits are. And, and confidence uh, is something that we're thinking about today. Are you one of those people who tend to be on the overconfident side, you're really confident about the things you do in life, or are you one of those people who tends to be timid and nervous and not very confident uh, are you unconfident? Most people fall into one of those two categories, though sometimes it depends on the situation. You might be confident sometimes and unconfident in others. Uh, an overconfident, brash, even American racing car driver who's an adrenaline junkie might be petrified of heights and you know, even walking up three stairs, they start to shake and quiver. That can be the case. Or Paul Potts, you remember him. Uh, you know, nervous Nelly in a low-paying job in Britain who who gets talked into going on to Britain's Got Talent, the first one, and wins it uh, singing Amazing Opera and goes on world tours and uh, not a really confident person. But normally, most people tend towards one extreme or the other. So which one are you? And does it depend on the situation? Having confidence is a great thing normally. Confident people do better in job interviews. They, they get a first date more often. They, they ask for pay rises and tend to get them. Uh, they make friends more easily. People who lack confidence, uh, they, they don't expect to get those things in life, do they? And so they either just don't ask for them at all. And when they do happen to ask for them, it's in such a way that you know that they're assuming the answer is going to be no. Yeah, would it be okay if... And, and and that comes across in the way it's asked and generally they get refused. And 
In the most extreme cases, a lack of confidence leads to fear and paralysis and not being able to cope or do anything. As we turn to Hebrews chapter 10 today, we're shown that there is one area of life, one situation, which all of us can have complete confidence in, complete confidence about, and which we should have confidence in, and which will change our life if we do have that confidence in every way, and that is we should be confident and can be confident about where we stand with God. Our passage is a confidence builder in that one area. Now, how do I see that from the passage we just read about priests and sacrifices and laws? Well, you see it in verse 19, which is one verse after the end of our section today, because that starts with the word, therefore, and I've I've said before, uh, and hopefully you've learned it by now, when you see the word therefore, well, in any book, but in the Bible, when you see the word therefore, you've got to ask the question, what is it therefore? You know, because of what I've just said, because of the things I've just argued, therefore it follows that, the implication is that, well, what's this implication of what the first part, the, the bit we're looking at is? Well, the implication is supreme confidence before God. See there in verse 19, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled cleansed from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. It's all about confidence. You see the words he uses like boldness and full assurance. He's saying it's possible for us to have complete confidence to enter into God's presence, to have full confidence that, that God's with us, confidence that he won't turn us away, confidence that we our welcome. But it's a confidence which flows out of everything he's just said in the first 18 verses of the chapter, which is our section we're looking at today. So when you turn back to that section and read through what he's saying, he's saying we can be so confident with God, but but really we can only have that confidence if it's in the right place. Lots of people have confidence in something they really shouldn't have. Uh, those who are overconfident in themselves and their own abilities and strength, the, well, the person who thinks they can wrestle a lion or an elephant, uh, is one, or the straight A student who, you know, breezes through high school without much study and then gets to uni and first midterm exam fails it. <coughs> uh, I won't say who that was. Uh, the, the, the P plater who, who just oozes overconfidence as they're zigzagging through the traffic and they're tailgating everyone. They think nothing can happen, but they're giving everyone else heart attacks. Uh, they really shouldn't have their confidence. Uh, Paul Walker, the star of the Fast and Furious movies, uh, he, he started believing that he was the character and living it out and he had an overconfidence and he crashed his car at 200 miles an hour and died. <sighs> Overconfidence, particularly in yourself, can lead to a really tragic end. 
But there's also those who put their confidence in the wrong thing. That's not themselves, something else. And it, it lets them down. Something that really shouldn't have been trusted. Uh, the person who is taken in by a scammer who's promising the world. Uh, the person who runs for the train and jumps on just as it's leaving. He's few and sits down, closes their eyes and wakes up in another destination because it was one going the wrong way up towards Newcastle instead of home. The person who didn't notice that the chair was broken or it only had three legs when they went to sit down on it and collapses on the ground. They, all of them, put their confidence in the wrong place, in the wrong thing. And so it is with God. There's a right confidence that we can have with God, a life-changing, soul-satisfying confidence, but it has to reside in the right place because the alternatives are all guaranteed to let you down. So what's the right thing to put your confidence in when it comes to God? Well, it turns out it's a person. It's Jesus Christ. He's able to give us supreme confidence to know God, to approach God without fear, without doubt, but with boldness, full assurance, certainty. How? By opening up a new way to God. And our passage really is explaining how it is that that works. How can we have that certainty? How is it that Jesus Christ can give us that confidence? And he does it because he's done away with the old covenant. That is the deal that God made with the people of Israel. His chosen people. Jesus lived, he died and rose again to take away the old way of relating to God, which was all about performance and about ritual and about religious ceremony. All the outward signs, all the outward symbols, the rituals, the regulations, the Old Testament religion, Jesus has done away with it all. And he's warning us that if you were to still go and try and relate to God that way or in a similar way, that it would be just like sitting on a broken chair or getting on the wrong train, heading in the wrong direction. If It won't get you there. Your confidence would be totally misplaced. Now, why is that? Surely if God made the original deal with, in the first place with his people, Israel, and that it, that it really ought to have been a, a pretty valid way to relate to God, shouldn't it? Effective. But turns out, it never was. And verse 1 explains why. 10 verse 1. Have a look there. Because the law has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the reality itself. I don't know if you spend a lot of time thinking about shadows. Maybe you're freaked out by them and what could be them as little kids. Uh, we play that game where uh, you, you, you're trying not to let other people step on your shadow and you're trying to jump on theirs. It's lots of fun and get pretty active, but, but no one's ever been hurt by someone stepping on their shadow and when they've lost the game. It doesn't damage you when someone steps on your shadow because it's not the reality of you. Shadows are an indication of something else being there and they might give you an idea of the, the, the size and the shape of what, what it looks like. But they, and they certainly have their uses. Shadows can be really helpful. Uh, boxers do shadow boxing. 
uh, to perfect their form and their technique by looking at their shadow or maybe their reflection in a mirror. Uh, they look to find yeah, where their weaknesses might be. Uh, you can know if you're under the protection of a roof uh, because of its shadow and you're no longer standing outside and you can you can make a cool show that gives you, you know, impressions of butterflies and rabbits and things with shadows on the wall. But we never confuse the shadow with reality. But what we're told here in verse 1 is that the old covenant, the old law of, of Israel was only ever a shadow of things that were to come. It wasn't the reality, it was just a sign. It was, it was an arrow pointing you to somewhere else. It was a bit like a dress rehearsal getting you excited for the, the real thing that was coming. And because it was a shadow, it could never give anyone real confidence because it couldn't ever live up to its grandiose promises about taking away our sins, which is what you would need to happen if you were to have full confidence and access to God. But the whole religious system that they were giving, it never worked to do that properly. Have a look, why? Verse 1, since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the reality itself of those things, it can never perfect the worshippers by the same sacrifices they continually offer year after year. Otherwise, wouldn't they have stopped being offered, since the worshippers, purified once and for all, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. You see what he's saying? If the animal sacrifices they made in the temple and before that in the tent worked to bring you forgiveness from God, if they actually took away sins, why would you ever need to make another one and another one and another one the next time round? And so what was the point of God giving them in the first place? Well, verse 3 explains. But in the sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year after year. It was given to them and given to them to remind them and to remind the world and to remind us that sin is an ever-present reality that has to be dealt with in some way, someday, somehow. That's what it was for. It wasn't there to bring forgiveness. It was to point to the need for forgiveness. All that religion that Israel ever participated in, the fact that the sacrifices they kept getting made, the, the, the fact that they kept going to the temple, the fact that they had to keep going up to a priest uh, and, and try to pay for their sin somehow, sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, it didn't show that it was working precisely the opposite. It showed that it didn't work. That's why you had to keep going back and nothing actually changed and there would be a new one you'd have to offer the next day, the next week, the next year. I mean, think for a moment about the whole architecture of the temple or its predecessor, the tabernacle, the tent that they travelled around with in the desert and that they set up in Israel when they initially took the land. Uh, they, had, they, camp, they had to camp around this tent uh, and that's where God was supposed to dwell. And here's a, here's a picture of the layout of Moses' tabernacle, the tent of meeting as it was called. And, and you'll notice that there's different sections. There's, there's tents within tents. There's an outer court, 
there's the holy place and, and in the middle there's another one called the most holy place that was separated by a big, thick, heavy curtain. Uh, and, and the temple that came later on, which replaced this, well, it had extra sections around those ones. Uh, here's, here's a picture of Herod's temple, the last one that existed, of which the, the, the western wall, the wailing wall, is the only thing still standing of it today in Jerusalem. Let's just go through the areas in this picture here. There, there was an outer court, where, you know, which was kind of the boundaries of the temple, where anyone could go. It was called the court of the Gentiles. Then there was, there was a low wall about waist height with strong warnings on it not to enter further, into which only Jews could go. Inside that there was another court, it was the women's court, but then past that there was the men's court where only Jewish men could go. Inside that there was a sanctuary, we're in the inner temple now, where only the priests could go. The priests of Israel, that was the holy place where there was an, the, an altar and that famous Jewish seven-pronged lampstand. Uh, and that's where the sacrifices would be made. Pigeons, lambs, bulls, goats, all of them were killed with their throats slit and their blood poured out and around the base of that altar. Sometimes hundreds of them each day. And then again, just like in the tent, there was a big, thick, heavy curtain which separated another tiny little room, only a couple of metres across, the most holy place, the holy of holies, the place signifying the, the dwelling place of God. This is where God lived, where he dwelt. And only the high priest could go in there and only once a year and only then after he'd made sacrifices first for himself and then for the whole nation and when he did go in there, he sprinkled everything inside with blood. He just flicked it around, blood everywhere. And the reason for that whole ritual was because blood and death is the punishment for sin in God's world. You remember right back at the start of the Bible, God, God said to Adam, and you know, the day you do what I told you not to eat from that tree, you will die. Death is the consequence of sin. And so blood needs to be shed. Death needs to come if there's to be forgiveness. And the only way a Jew could get out of their own death and their own blood paying was for something else, an animal, to die in place of them. God takes sin and he takes your sin and he takes my sin that seriously. And the priest would lay his hand on the head of the animal and it would signify the, the transfer of guilt from, you know, from the person onto the animal and then he would take a knife and his throat would be slit and its blood would be poured out and caught and spread around. It's gory stuff when you're going to read through Leviticus and how the sacrifices worked. And so you see that the temple was a very strange place of mixed emotions. On the one hand, it was a place of great hope and joy because God's here, God's here with his people. God lives in our midst. Wow, think about that. You know, what if God decided he would take up residence in the middle of the city, in the town hall, no doubt, and we could go there and hang out, right, and God would be in there. That would be wonderful, wouldn't it? But, but it was also a reminder that people cannot come close to God. 
They can't come close to God because of their sin. Because everything about the temple said, keep out, you are not welcome, you cannot enter in. Stay away. You cannot come near because you are a sinner. And sin requires death. And that's exactly what the temple was set up to do. Remind you, it did those both things. Hope and joy, God's there, but keep away, you cannot come close. And it's for that reason that it could only ever be a shadow. Because while it showed you what the problem was, it could never deal with it. Temples, priests, sacrifices can never make up for it. Outward acts, doing good deeds, doing religion can never make up for sin. It it can never make up for our failure to glorify God as God, as we should. Um, Our failure to thank him for everything that he gives us and to to rejoice in his prayer, to live for him, our failure to do that. You, You just can't do religious acts and think that it makes up for everything in your life that's displeasing to God, for your ingratitude that you've shown him, for the lack of thanks, the way you've lived, for your own interest and glory more often than not, and not for his. See, it's a bit like having chicken pox. If you've had chicken pox, spots everywhere, very itchy and uncomfortable, uh, or shingles later in life. I had a bout of the shingles uh, earlier in the year, uh, uh, not very pleasant. Uh, and uh, But imagine having the chicken pox and you think, you know what, I'll just put on some makeup and it'll all be okay because you know, it'll cover up the spots. It doesn't fix the disease, does it? You're actually still sick. You might look okay. Or or an old bomb of a car, a rust bucket, and you go, oh, if I give it a fresh paint job, it looks good, looks shiny, so it must be good. No, underneath it's still uh, that rusty old death trap you're driving around in. It's dodgy. But when Jesus comes, who was the reality of the Old Testament law and rituals pointing to, he doesn't come and just put a fresh smear of paint on old things that don't work. He does away with the old way of relating to God. He does away with the shadows as he brings his glorious light and brings the reality. He brings the light. He brings the truth. He brings the substance of a real relationship with God. How does he do that? Well, we're told because of three things. Three things which the Old Testament was foreshadowing but it never achieved. Here's the three things. Firstly, by offering a infinitely superior sacrifice, which actually does the job of bringing us forgiveness from God. Secondly, by being an infinitely superior high priest. I mean, he's already talked about that at length. Since chapter 5, he's been talking about that. And also by making an entirely new covenant with us, a new deal which has the power to actually change our hearts rather than just give us a bunch of rules that we're never going to live up to. And all three of those things are there in order to give us the real confidence with God. So I just want to run through them quickly because that's what the chapter does. And God wants us to hear and to understand this. And so firstly, the sacrifices. Jesus' death on the cross happened as a new and different sacrifice, one that actually works. Because having lived the perfect life of being told that over and over again in Hebrews, you can see it as you read through the Gospels, he doesn't need an animal to die for him like the old priest did. 
Instead, having lived the perfect life, he offers himself as the sacrifice for us. The righteous him for the unrighteous us. The old sacrifices never work. See it in verse 4. It is impossible, impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. How could you ever think that an animal dying could fix your relationship with God? Even if you could beat up a lion or an elephant, which apparently 8% of Americans and 2% of Britons think they can do, that's not going to pay for your sin doing that. I I mean, impressive, but not going to pay for sin. But Jesus' death, it can make us right with God because God is paying the price himself. There's a broken relationship with him and so it's one of the parties that has to pay and God decides in this sacrifice he's going to with the life of his son. And his death was once and for all. That's the point that's made over and over again through this chapter. He died one death, never to be repeated. He did it for all sin, for all people, once for all. So 10 verse 10, for example. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. Or verse 18. Now where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. They're done. One offering did it. We can't just go to church to have our sins dealt with. We don't go to a confessional and speak to a human priest to have our sins dealt with. We don't do good works to have our sins dealt with. We don't give money to church to have our sins dealt with. There might be very good reasons to do some or all of those things, but none of the reasons are to pay for our sins. They are just aren't required to deal with sin because once and for all time our sin was dealt with on the cross with Jesus Christ. God says, you see it there, I will never again remember their sins and their lawless acts. Forgotten. Gone. As far as the east is from the west, so far has the Lord removed our sins from us. That's Psalm 103 promises that Jesus, as far as the east is from the west, that's a long way. That's how powerful the sacrifice of Jesus is. That That's how powerful the cross is. One act deals for all sinful acts, past, present and future, once for all. One act deals with limitless numbers of human acts. You could add a million, you could add a billion, you could add a trillion, you could add a Googleplex of humans with all their sins in the future and it would still be covered by the cross of Christ. But he's not just the sacrifice, he's also the priest that we need. A new and different high priest. I don't spend much on that because there's been a lot of discussion through the book. We've talked about that week after week. But he sums it up here. He was a superior priest because he was sinless. That's why we can be confident in Jesus in a way we could never be confident in ourselves or any other minister or priest because Jesus perfectly lived by God's standards. Jesus perfectly lived out God's law. He perfectly obeyed God's will, even unto death. And what's more, it's not just his perfection, it's also that he's now in heaven at God's right hand 
interceding for us. More on that next week. But you see it there in verse 11. Every priest stands day after day ministering and offering one the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sins. But this man, after offering one sacrifice for sin forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He is now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. What's that saying? No one can get in his way. And no one can take you away from him if you are his. We can trust this high priest. Anything that stands opposed to God is going to be destroyed. Anyone who stands opposed is not going to, right? He's going to conquer. He is the one who's there. He's conquered and trust him. So he's the better sacrifice, the infinitely superior one. He's the infinitely superior priest. But finally, there's a change in the covenant. There's a new deal. David mentioned last week that the word covenant means contract. It's an illegal arrangement and the old covenant was a legal arrangement that God made with Israel. The old covenant was a bunch of rules and regulations. Uh, It had moral rules about life, it had ceremonial rules about all these rituals and it had civil rules about how to operate as a society. But they were all written where? They were all written on tablets of stone and and they were archived in the temple. In fact, they were archived in the Ark of the Covenant and that was in the Holy of Holies. And so there's the written word of God, the law, on a tablet of stone out of reach. And while it occasionally might be read out to the people and people were aware generally of the stuff, it only ever pointed towards a new covenant that was hugely different. And what's the difference? Well, verse 16. This is the covenant I will make with them, the new one that's coming after those days, the Lord says, I will put my laws on their hearts and I'll put them in their mind and I'll never again remember their sins and their lawless acts. Not only does Jesus' sacrifice work in paying for our sins, not only is he a much better priest whose ministry is effective and ongoing and unstoppable, But God's now actually in the business of changing us so that we can know him and his ways and so that we want to please him. He's at work in us, shaping our yearnings and our desires. He's showing us why his ways are so good and so beneficial for us and so glorifying to him. He's at work in you, helping you to cherish his way of life and and to delight in his ways. The old covenant, it had sacrifices, it had priests, it had rules, but it had no power to forgive you, it had no power to change you, it had no power to shape you. The new covenant does. And because of all of those things, Jesus won't let you down. He is, he is totally reliable. He is the only one we should be putting our confidence in when it comes to God. He has opened the way. More than that, he enables us to have boldness to enter into God's presence. We can know him not just as our powerful maker or even as our fearsome judge who will face one day. We can now come to God as our loving heavenly father in full assurance that our sins have been forgiven, that that they've been paid for, that there's nothing to fear, that we're welcome in his home, that he's now with us. 
And so I want to finish up by asking you to reflect on two questions. And I, I really, really want you to go away and think hard about these two things, about where you stand. Okay? The first question is this. Are you confident before God? Do you have a confidence before God? You don't have to be confident about anything else in life. If you don't want to be, that's fine. You know, confidence, it helps you get ahead. As I said before, you know, confidence helps you get the girl, get the job, get the pay rise, get ahead. But there's, there's things, uh, sorry, there's things you can do to build that confidence. There's exercise you can do and some self-reflection. But it doesn't matter to God in the slightest whether you think you could wrestle a bear to the ground barehanded or a kangaroo or even a rat. Um, but it doesn't matter if you're timid in those things. But here is something you can and you should have confidence about, full assurance of where you stand with him. And secondly, if you are confident where you stand with him, what's the basis for that confidence? Is it Jesus or is your confidence misplaced in something else entirely? Because if it's any in anything else other than Jesus, then you really shouldn't be confident at all because you're on the wrong train. You're about to sit on a broken chair. The, the way to test whether your confidence uh, really lies uh, with him or somewhere else is to ask yourself, well, if I died tonight, I don't want to die. If COVID hit me and I got a bad reaction or... I took the drug and you know the, the vaccine out of barrel or I just got hit by a car, right? Or whatever. And and I'm standing at the pearly gates and God says, I'm not saying I won't let you in, but but why should I? Why would I let you into my home? What would you say? Well, because because I was baptized. <laughs> because I I uh, I was a good bloke. I did nice things for my family because I, uh, I was confirmed because I went to uh, one of the most awesome churches in the southwest of the city, St. Barnabas Anchor Church in Ingleburn and Coffield. I mean, amazing. You know, because I'm awesome, because I can do this, because I can wrestle the bear, uh, because I sacrificed so much of my money and my time to good things. I gave to charity because I, if your answer begins with, because I, I want to say your confidence is misplaced. It's in the wrong spot. Uh, why should God let Joe in? Because Jesus Christ died for my sins. And he's alive again. And he's walking me home, forgiven, not because of anything I've done, but because of his incredible Grace and mercy and nothing can stand in my way. I have every hope, every confidence. Anything else though other than Jesus is a pale shadow with no substance at all and will only let you down, especially if it's yourself. Don't trust yourself. Trust the Lord Jesus Christ. Why don't we pray? Our Father, we thank you for your incredible mercy in not just sticking with the old ways, 
but thank you that they were there as a shadow pointing towards Jesus Christ, our true hope, our saviour, our confidence, the sacrifice for our sins that's been done once for all, the priests we need who intercedes with you, who sits at your right hand, whose enemies are, are, are not going to stand. We thank you for the astonishing boldness that we can have and we pray that we would be bold in coming to you, in claiming you as our Father, in knowing that heaven is our home, that you are with us, that we are yours. And we pray that that confidence might exude itself in every aspect of our life, that it might transform us as we're going to go on to here next week, that we might love in a way that's unshackled, that we might encourage, that we might draw close to you, that we might go on and deal with the sins that are there in our life. We, Father, we pray that you would change us, let this confidence soak into the very marrow of our bones, overwhelm us and transform every part of our lives for your glory, for our good, for the, the sake of your gospel going into the world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.